Hello, and welcome to the Second Chapter Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Erin Hunter. Although Erin has acted her entire life, she wrote her first solo show after 35, and I'm so excited to announce that I'll be producing it for the Edinburgh Fringe in August. In this episode, Erin and I talk about aging as a female actor, her brilliantly funny show, which she wrote and performs in, Surfing the Holy Land, and she even puts me in the hot seat to talk about my work producing female-led shows for Slackline Productions. I'm so excited because this is a first listen to an extended version of the interview that will appear in print soon, and it's just for listeners of the second chapter. That's probably the biggest one, a woman who finds herself and finds her inner strength or chutzpah, as we say in the show. And really, it's also about rebirth, the story of transformation. Hi, Erin. Thanks for joining me on the second chapter. How are you? I'm great. I'm very excited and refreshed after the platy jubes weekend. Thank you very much for the uh, platy jubes moniker. <laughs> I cannot take credit. It's, I can't think of a surname, but it's Keel, whatever his name is from Ghosts, is taking credit for that one. So I love him and I think he's so funny. And I was like, you know what? It's so stupid. I'm going to say platy jubes about everything. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are, two American women in London here to chat mm. about your upcoming show. And I should say our upcoming show, at the Edinburgh Fringe, Surfing the Holy Land. I'm so excited to be producing it. And I'm assuming you're excited to be finally getting to perform it at Edinburgh. Yes, uh, it was, it's sort of a long time overdue. I was planning to do it in 2020, but then a certain coronavirus got in the way of a lot of live arts and life in general. Yes, better late than never. Second chapter, new leaf, post-pandemic-y kind of world. So Yes, more excited and feeling more energized and actually more ready and prepared than I would have been two years ago. Mixed yeah. blessings then. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm cheating a little bit because normally I'd have somebody who's changed their lives and careers after 35. But I think the fact that we're working on this show together, we're both powerhouse women in the entertainment industry after 35, I like to think. So we're going to chat with each other a little bit about the show. And I'm scared to say you're going to be interviewing me a little bit as well. <laughs> she was on the other foot today. <laughs> exactly. Listeners, watch out. Once again, the tables are turned. But Saying that, you've been an actor always, yes? I have, yes, since I was a, a little kid going to auditions in Los Angeles for uh, commercials and stuff like that. It goes way back and in the blood, too. My great-grandma moved to Hollywood to become a screenwriter in the 1930s. So I have lots of photos of her with glamorous 1920s and 30s stars in my parents' house. So, yeah, it goes way back. And speaking of in the blood, I've met your daughter and she is definitely taking after the family genes. Yes, she's also, she'll be up in Edinburgh for, for the festival and she's already seen the show a few times and seen me rehearse enough that she could probably get up and do it herself and I'll be hard pressed to prevent her from jumping on stage to sing some of the songs or act out some of the uh, parts and jokes and things. Yeah, the title I have is producer, but I think it's actually going to be Lola Entertainer slash don't <laughs> let her on stage. <laughs> Child wrangler. <laughs> exactly. What was the inspiration behind Surfing the Holy Land? You say that it's a little, we're cheating a little bit with the topic today, but I did write this show after 35. So... It was um, always on the bucket list for me to write a one-woman show. 
And the opportunity never seemed to present itself until uh, a few years ago when my husband and my daughter, who was two at the time, moved to Tel Aviv for my husband's work. I should say you moved with them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep keeping not to mess out that I went to. I can just ship them off to Tel Aviv while I stayed in London living a single lady's life. Yeah, so we went to Tel Aviv. I I disparaged on the way, wondering what I was going to do with uh, very little Hebrew, how I'd be able to act, um, how my career would stay intact. And I took a step back and realized that the total change of scenery would be a good opportunity to finally write that one person show, which I was absolutely terrified of the thought of it and didn't know what I was going to write about until I got there and saw that there was a surf community there. I didn't know that there was surfing and I'd always wanted to learn. I'm from Los Angeles and never learned how to surf. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to give it a go. And just the wild times that we had in Tel Aviv, plus the just the sort of odd and interesting, almost uh, uh, conflicting experience of surfing, which is the most sort of laid back community there is, but in a conflict sound, just felt ripe for turning into a one woman show. Um, Plus inspired a little bit because I very much felt like a fish out of water. <laughs> no pun intended. Or pun intended. Come on. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I converted to Judaism for love for my husband. And so I properly felt like a fish out of water. So the combination of being a Jewish convert and learning to surf felt the perfect material for a one woman show because it was such a unique experience. Yeah. And I kept a record, sort of daily records of all the sort of odd and unusual and wild things that happened to us there from like going to the Golan Heights and going wine tasting and you could see the Syrian border and driving through areas that had signs that said warning landmines (laughs) or like going to, you know, a wild bar mitzvah in the desert near Masada, which is right on the Dead Sea. And there were a lot of wild experiences. So yeah. Lots of material. One of my favorite things that you've said about the show, I'll quote it. Uh, The show is 100% fiction and not at all based on Aaron's experiences living in the Israeli Balagang. 95% fiction, uh, at least 90%. Okay, 70. 70% (laughs) fiction. Do you think that's statistically accurate? I'd probably have to do a page-by-page breakdown to find out the, the exact statistic. But I would say it's at least 50% fiction. <laughs> but it's really hard to tell because I've lived this show so much that it's like reality and, and fiction blend together, are starting to blend together more and more because I've been living the show so much that I almost start to forget what the original inspiration for some of it was. So... You kind of touched on it already, just basically saying what your experiences were. But the show has 12 characters, four ukulele anthems, as I like to call them. (laughs) Just give me a little bit more of a description about the show. It's about a wide-eyed American who winds up living in Tel Aviv. And in order to survive the balagan, which is the Hebrew word for chaos, in order to survive the Balagan of Israel, she learns to surf. And it's a story of transformation 
uh, this woman's journey of discovery is she she finds herself and her inner strength through surfing. And it also is about how while she gets sucked into surfing, her husband, who on arriving in Tel Aviv is is a pretty secular Jew, ends up being drawn further and further into religion. I, I like to say that he finds the wailing wall and she finds a wall of water. And as the play continues, it becomes more and more about they find themselves, but will they lose each other? Oh, and it's each lesson, it's all in the water. So each scene is structured as a, a surf lesson. So there are lessons in and then out of the water. And it jumps around a lot in time and place and memory. And as you said, there are four ukulele anthems. I won't say too much about them because they do give away plot, but uh, one that doesn't, that will give you a good sense of it, is an Orthodox party at Ikea. Um, this is one of the songs, which is based very much in an experience I actually had going to Ikea at nine o'clock on a Thursday. <laughs> uh, 9 p.m., that is, on a Thursday. I think it's safe to say that one of the things that I, a couple of the things I loved about the show is that it is really funny. I was really surprised, actually, that you hadn't surfed your whole life because it's really physical and you're just doing these pop-ups and things like a pro. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to you teaching me a pop-up. I think that's going to be one of our things through this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is one of the most challenging things that I've ever learned to do. <laughs> They are very small and I have these big gangly legs that I'm just convinced cannot fold underneath me. I'm convinced. <laughs> there are enough tall surfers in the world. And uh, come on, you're a triathlete. So I, I think you probably, you'll probably be able to manage it. <laughs> Fine. I'm <laughs> definitely going to give it a go because I've tried this many times before and I've not succeeded and I'm convinced you're the ticket. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one of the things we've talked about, and then you talked about the fact that there's a religious aspect to the show but it's certainly not a show based around religion. It's something that could have happened, a fish out of water story anywhere. But what would you say the underlying themes are? Female empowerment. <laughs> yeah, which I think that's probably something that's drawn me to this show. Yeah, so I, that, that's probably the biggest one. A woman who finds herself and finds her inner strength or chutzpah, as we say in the show. And really, I, I think as well, it's also about rebirth, the story of transformation and drawing on the themes of this podcast, you know, that everyone can have a, a second chance and you can change your life. And of course, it's also about the immigrant experience. I, I think that is why I think it's resonated a lot, not just with audiences who, who are Jewish or have been to Israel, but I think even if you've moved away from your hometown, you'll have some sort of experience that, that any immigrant might have of feeling new, feeling marginalized and the loneliness that comes along with that. And even though it is set in Israel, it really could be set in any city, in any country, because it is truly a, a classic fish out of water story, not as prominent as female empowerment and the immigrant experience, but it also draws on questions of devotion because there are parallel devotional aspects to religion and to surfing. The surfers I know, it is their religion and they worship at the altar of the sea and they are married to the sea, almost like a convent nun. They, everything is revolves around that for for those sort of hardcore surfers. I, I really like that parallel aspect. 
So life in Tel Aviv, what was the standout? What struck you the most about living specifically in Tel Aviv? Well, what was interesting is that I went in with all these sort of preconceived notions of I'm going to be living in a conflict zone and I'm going to be constantly in danger and I'm going to have to be running to the, the shelter on a regular basis. You know, I thought that I would be much more aware on a daily basis of basically being at at risk of the conflict escalating at any given moment. And as it turned out, you get desensitized to that. In Tel Aviv, people live life to the fullest. And maybe that is because they live in a conflict zone. But Tel Aviv is an electric city. The, The energy you get just walking down the streets, it almost hits you like a punch. It is just such a vibrant city. And I do think that is because of the fact that they are living in a conflict zone. But having said that, a lot of the time I totally forgot about it because it is (laughs) a beautiful place. The weather is incredible. It's sunny all the time. You have the gorgeous Mediterranean on your doorstep. The food, oh my God, the Israeli food is, there's been a real renaissance, I think, in the last I don't know, 20 plus years. And Israeli food is amazing. There's actually quite a few Israeli restaurants in London. Otto Lange. I was going to say Otto Lange. Yum. Yeah, quite a few of those. One called Bala Baya, which is actually delicious in London Bridge. Yeah, the food's amazing. And the markets, just fresh food and people shouting, offering you deals in Hebrew of this fruit and that vegetable and dates and spices. And it is, yeah, I think really just... It's just such a vibrant city. Like you never get bored in Tel Aviv. I mentioned your daughter and I know that you have your comedy duo. First of all, tell me about this name. Well, uh, the, the name is Hunt the Vegan. I should say I've researched vegan. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. I'm so confused. It's a place. It's a whatever. I was like, what is it? So my last name is Hunter and my comedy partner, James, his last name is Gavigan. Seth? It just ended up being this weird, fun amalgamation of our names. And then we did create a, um, a vegan is now a thing. It's a furry little animated creature. And not to be confused with vegans, which sometimes people think it's hunt the vegan. But no, I am vegetarian. So hunting vegans would probably not be top on my list. The reason I mentioned in connection with your daughter is because you had the boobies in a box video that has gone super viral. I guess my question is multifold, but how much did having your daughter, how much of a change was that? And then this whole boobies in a box, how, you know, tell me about that. James, my comedy partner and I started working together pre-baby, pre-Lola, but not long before her because even our, so the, the first thing we made together was a sort of vintage style screwball comedy style web series called A Quick Fortune. Five sort of short episodes, which did the festival circuit and won some awards. But when we were filming it, I was pregnant. I feel like Lola is an integral part of, of our comedy duo <laughs> in a way. I remember throwing up on set and stuff like that. <laughs> that was fun. So fast forward a year and Lola <laughs> enters the world and we had said, wouldn't it be great if we could make a sketch with Lola while she's still a baby? And that was just how it started because I've always been one of those moms who just wanted to include Lola and in everything. I didn't want to stop my life 
in order to accommodate a child. I thought she can just be part of it. And so I always had her strapped on my front. So she also, that meant that she was part of Hunt the Vegan. And I breastfed, I ended up breastfeeding Lola for three years, which I know not many mothers do. And Lola was one when we made that. And I had a lot of experiences where I'd take her out and I'd be breastfeeding in a public place. And you get a lot of, you get looks and you get differing opinions on what's appropriate. And if it were up to me, I would just whip my boob out and and feed her because it's her food and it's her mealtime too. Anyway, it, it just kept drifting up into my consciousness, this idea of public breastfeeding and that there actually was a debate about what's appropriate and whether it's appropriate. And so we wrote that sketch in the space of a few hours and little did we know that it would touch such a nerve and spark this sort of global, a lot of support, a lot of people. It did really provoke debate about what's appropriate these days. But I think that's something I really enjoy about making my own work is, is being provocative and sparking debate and conversation about stuff that and using humor. I think is is the best way. Like there's been so many essays and novels and panel discussions about these kinds of topics, but I think a sketch through humor and entertainment, you're gonna, I think, reach a lot more people without hammering them over the head with it and actually end up having a bigger impact in the end. It's funny you say that because the last time I interviewed someone who also had several changes in her life, but was involved with the slackline situation. So we were talking about the play we were producing. Her her play was just this, you know, ridiculous, crazy, very dark, but very funny play. And she said exactly the same thing. She wanted to get across an environmental message. There was a lot of female empowerment in it. But to sit and just tell people like, oh, it's bad to not recycle on the smallest <laughs> possible terms. You shouldn't drive your car. That's not the way to do it. Watching your video, I was cracking up laughing. But it did make me think somebody's going to watch this. There's a lot of debate around it. It could change opinions. It could all the things that you said. And, and because they're laughing, it's not a blow to the head. You must mm. do this. It's just a funny way of thinking about things a little differently. Yeah. And the same with surfing the Holy Land, actually. Yes. Yes, because it's not a play about the conflict. It's not about Israel-Palestine. But I do definitely throw in moments that are, I like to say, I lob a little grenade, pun intended, for people to think about. And, you know, don't linger on it, but hopefully you know, wrapped in humor and wrapped in comedy so that people can laugh about it, but then also think about it afterwards. And I, that's why I love comedy, because it's such a, a powerful tool to get people thinking and talking and potentially changing their outlook or their behavior. It's I, that's what I love about comedy and theater and entertainment, that it has that because it's such a powerful tool. You've definitely been doing a lot of writing for yourself and creating your own work for a while. But do you think that you've seen changes? You look very young. So, I mean, to say changes past 35, blah, blah, blah. But do you think what I'm always beating people over the head with about women becoming invisible, especially in the entertainment industry, do you find that happening to you? Do you think that's a thing? I de- a hundred percent. Um, as much as li- I'd like to say that um, it's no longer the case and that everyone's, what is it, third wave feminist and, and that there is gender parity on stage and on screen. 
and behind the cameras and behind set. We're still far from that. And I can see that the industry is waking up a little bit. What was it with the last Academy Awards? I think, was it the second woman in history to win an Oscar for directing ever? The statistics, I think, are still pretty harrowing. (laughs) And I think perhaps I don't notice it quite as much because I've made an active choice to to make my own work and make that my my focus so that when auditions come in, I'm grateful for them. But I definitely have noticed that that things are quieter once you I think once you even hit 30. Oh, which is so disappointing because I mean, as someone who didn't even start until my mid thirties, I, I ask you the question partially because I'm like, is it me? I didn't start young and I didn't have this big build up. And is it more difficult? And I would say, yeah, it's more difficult entering at the most difficult or one of the more difficult times. And you, your window's so short. Nice. I mean, if you go to drama school and you graduate like mid twenties and you've got what, five years, and then you're competing against everybody else who's just come out of drama school. Yeah, it's it's a sticky situation, isn't it? <laughs> to, to to sound a little bit more British than I am. It's not easy. And I, I hope that for Lola's generation, that things will have progressed. One of my many day jobs is um, running a drama club at Lola's school. And it's a girls' school. I don't have to hide my feminist agenda. And each drama lesson is about an amazing woman who changed the world from Cleopatra to Amelia Earhart to Ada Lovelace and Bangari Matai. And I hope that the work that is being done now, what I'm trying to do is sort of planting the seeds that you can reach higher. You have, there are role models out there, women doing amazing things that hopefully in a generation's time, we might be a bit closer to gender parity. But in the meantime, that's, I think, why my advice to, I call myself an actor, I don't use the term actress, but for the female actors out there who are feeling the pinch and not getting the works that they hope they would because of the lack of opportunity, my advice is always, don't sit by, don't stand by, make your own work, make your own opportunities because they're not going to come to you. You have to do it yourself. (laughs) Nobody knows you're sitting at home waiting. Like, yeah, you have to be knocking on that door because the people behind the door are not coming to try to find you. Yeah, they have people like it's fine. You have to be there and making yourself present, which I think takes a lot of confidence. And I do think that's one thing that I'd like to think is a benefit of getting older is that the confidence level is sometimes it is more difficult, but there is something inside of you that's I'm not going to stand for this bullshit anymore. (laughs) Yes, I think that. Being that much older and also being a mother, I, I'm ta- I take less crap. And I realize that the, the clock is ticking just generally in life. If I'd only seen myself, if I could, could have told my younger self that you will have this confidence in a few years' time. Yeah, I definitely feel a lot more confident and willing to knock on those doors than I would have done when I was fresh out of drama school. Definitely. One thing we talked about very briefly, but the musical element of the show, Mm. I'm looping back around. We've gone through our strong women bit, but do you think we talked about the ukuleles enough? No. (laughs) (laughs) I say ukuleles like you've got 10 ukuleles. You're spinning around. A ukulele band that pops up. Yeah. (laughs) 
So why ukulele songs in this? I feel like it, it's like a, I actually have a comedy song that I, very brief comedy song about not being able to pay, play the ukulele. Yes. So I'm convinced I'll never make it in comedy, but. <laughs> that I've not seen yet, Chris, and you're going to have to play that for me after a few pints. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so why the ukulele in this show? Or in your life in general? Oh, because it's the best instrument and I, I love it. And it, I feel like it is one of the happiest instruments out there. For me, I play the ukulele and I just feel so much better. It's like a, a great mood booster in general. And it's so portable. Also, the ukulele comes from Hawaii, which is the origin of surfing. So I think there's a nice sort of integration or connector there between surfing and the ukulele. I think of Hawaii when I think of both. On a more basic nuts and bolts level, it's the only instrument I know how to play. And when I decided to write a one-woman show, I thought, well, I want to play a bunch of characters and I want some songs in there because it's just... I don't know, makes things more hopeful, more fun. And that was one thing that I really leaned into when I was pregnant, heavily pregnant, and realized that it was going to be difficult for me to get much acting work, especially in my third trimester when I had a belly the size of a watermelon. I started writing more ukulele songs about the experience of being pregnant. And I'd really enjoyed that, kind of found my comedy voice through song much quicker than I, I thought I would. So it just seemed natural for me to tie it into to my one woman show because I love it. <laughs> I just keep picturing you just hugely pregnant with this little ukulele balanced on this really big belly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the songs are really funny too. And I think they're so integral to what happens in the show because it does, it just tells the story but again, like you said, it brings like comedy and hope and happiness and hilarity. And <laughs> I love it. I'm trying to get better at it. But as I said, pop-ups, it's one of these <laughs> things. Maybe I should write a comedy song about not being able to pop up on a surfboard. There you go. <laughs> I could help you with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to think about an interesting way to uh, segue into you asking me questions, but I can't really come up with one. So uh, you got anything for me? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. We could unofficially swap positions, swap seats, although you can't see us because it's a podcast. Yeah, I don't know if anybody remembers Wayne's um, World. World. <laughs> <laughs> now we're in a dream sequence and it's your turn to interview me. Yeah. So Kristen, thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I would love to know the origins of Slackline because I had the pleasure of performing in not one, but two of your 24-hour play festivals, one live and in person a few days before lockdown hit, <laughs> and then the second one online. But it was such a whirlwind experience, both of them, that I didn't actually get much time to chat to you about how Slackline came into being. So Tell me. First of all, caveat, I cannot call it a 24-hour play mm. festival because that is officially a taken title. I like to call it some sort of, I had various things, slackline sleepover. It was my ultimate mm. thing. So my apologies to the hashtag 24-hour plays people. <laughs> but yes, we did get to work together twice with that. And it was amazing, which is how we ended up 
now surfing the Holy Land together. But a uh, slackline is sort of a happy, sad story, really, because it really was like my divorce baby. I was, as I mentioned earlier, someone who had gone to drama school as a second, my own second or third or whatever chapter, and just felt like I wasn't getting the work that I wanted. And when things were ticking along happily with my marriage and life was good, it bothered me. And I was trying, you know, fairly aggressively to get more acting work. But when there was like a surprise divorce and life wasn't so happy, and on top of it, I was like, what am I going to do now? Not just from a, what am I going to do with myself? I need more fulfillment, but also what am I going to do with myself financially? And what am I going to do with myself? So how am I going to stay in this country? All of these different things came about. And I actually have to give credit to a friend because I was like, I'm thinking about going into business instead, or I'm thinking about trying to start something else, or I don't know what to do. And she said, why don't you do a theater company? And I was just <laughs> It was the stupidest thing for somebody to have to say to me. Now, financially, probably not the wisest choice. I will say that right away. And I will say also that I've really tried to make it more about not just theater. I love events and I love production in general. So I see myself growing and growing way beyond just saying I'm a theater company. But yeah, it was a bit of frustration about what I really saw happening with women in the industry and what I saw happening in my own life. and. Yeah, like I was getting divorced. I was looking for something and Slackline was born. And as it turns out, I love it. I love being able to empower women's voices a bit. And then the podcast was something I'd been considering a long time as well. And, and it's just more ways to, again, amplify women's voices, especially after a certain age. So here I am. Here you are. And we have to thank your friend who planted the seed in your head because it is there's nothing less of a, a success story. So since Slackline started, how many Slackline sleepovers have you done? We've had, it's been three or four different live events, which have been at Southwark Playhouse. And we've had, you know, things like that that have been pretty interesting, not all overnight. Some of them just call outs for scripts and things like that. But it's introduced me to a world of amazing female playwrights and directors and um, actors. And we have male and female non-binary in the shows. So I have a huge range, a huge pool of people, but quite a few events over lockdown because I didn't start that much before lockdown. I think officially I registered in 2018, but so then all of a sudden we're going into lockdown. And so, yeah, I would say one of the biggest things is actually uh, doing quite a few film plays, we were calling them. I think one of the directors, I had been casually calling it that, but one of the directors coined the title. But over mm -hmm. lockdown, we did 18 different short, kind of written to be performed virally because we knew that it wasn't going to be getting together in person, virtually, virally, virtually. We didn't go viral necessarily, but... <laughs> Never too late. Never too late. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's been one of the biggest things as well. And of course, I treated myself to getting to act in a couple of those. Those are still up on YouTube if anyone's interested. YouTube.com slash Slackline Productions. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get it viral. <laughs> yeah, dark art. <laughs> We've already touched on it. But in terms of your focus on women over 35 and giving female playwrights a voice, although it may be difficult to discern 
what impact have you felt or what have you seen since you started Slackline? Have you seen any, had any victories that you can talk about? I would say one of the things that I am happy to say that I think I'm very good at is connecting people. So I've seen quite a few people who have ended up working together or just this community that I've built that I'm really proud of. And I'm really proud of the fact that I end up working with people again and again, like you. Mm -hmm. I've made these kind of connections that not just for myself, but that I see rippling on, which I think whether or not that leads to something that everybody's heard of and becomes some big famous thing, I do think that is what my kind of knock on biggest effect has been. One of the playwrights that actually the show you were in. Linda. (laughs) Linda, I'm so proud of her because she ended up one of the the shows that she just wrote in less than 11 hours. Yeah, she had Mm -hmm. 11 hours to write it. And it also had ukulele songs and it was a really (laughs) hilarious sketch. And she went on to adapt it as a TV script and it's been getting a lot of attention, was a finalist in a big international screenwriting competition. I've kept a big connection with her and I think she's definitely going places and Mm -hmm. this is not her first career. And I think so many of the people that I've spoken to and worked with through Slackline are so relevant to the second chapter because it's not their first careers. And I think even just the practice that they've gotten writing and directing and working with Slackline is something that's built their confidence to be able to go on to the next level. So I'm really proud of that. And I think that's one of the things that probably would be what I hope to continue most. Yes. And then just to add on to what you were saying about what a good connector of people you are. I I know that with both times I did Slackline, I kept in touch with the director and other actors and writer that I was in my little show with, and we're still in touch. And I I can totally see that in with a few more sort of iterations of these wonderful events you create, that it'll only be a matter of time before you have West End shows and writers that have worked with you and stuff like that. I I can totally see that being the trajectory. Thanks. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So uh, I think we've already touched on it a little bit, but how does Serving the Holy Land fit in with your portfolio and mission from your perspective. Because I'd seen the show, and this was long before the idea of me helping to produce it for Edinburgh was like a twinkle in my eye. Mm -hmm. But I just really liked the show. And I did think it's such a cliche to say, I laughed, I cried, but I really did laugh a lot. It's really poignant and really touching. And it really does have this female empowerment message that I was like, oh, you need a producer. Yes, really, it's saying what I want to say. It's saying it with a sense of humor. And I really love the show. So it's my company and I'll do what I want with it. (laughs) Who do you think the show will appeal to? Now, obviously, Edinburgh is its next destination, but the festival attracts a global crowd. I think Edinburgh triples or quadruples in size during the the festival month. So who, who do you think the show speaks to? I'm like a marketing worst nightmare because when I like something, I'm like, it'll appeal to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think it really does have a broad appeal because as we talked about earlier, it's such a relatable story. So my mission is really that we stop saying that it's a woman's story or that it's female-led or Mm female-written. At the moment, that's what I'm focusing on because I do feel like it's an issue that we don't have. Like you said, statistically, there is an issue with this being a thing. 
I also just recently read something about novels, and I posted this actually on the Second Chapter Instagram page, but the percentage of men that will read novels written by women is staggeringly low compared to women who will read novels by men. Apparently that's why J.K. Rowling went with J.K. and didn't put her first name because she didn't think that young boys would, would read a book, even though it's about a wizard, a young boy. That's why she used J.K. And famously somebody like George Eliot, but you wouldn't think this many years later mm. that would still be a thing. Now I'm even trying to remember the question because I went on my soapbox. <laughs> yes. I really do think, based on that, I don't think that this is just a story of one woman. I think it's a story that will appeal to a lot of people. Obviously, we've got the surfing thing. Like you said, that is like a religion. So anybody who wants to know more about surfing, anybody who loves surfing will have a great time watching and, and hearing about your experience with surfing, I think. Heather in the, mm -hmm. in the place, yes. because I don't know. Again, it might be only... 70, 50% <laughs> fiction. I'm not sure. Yeah. So I think there's an interesting, there's an interesting dynamic, like you said, about living in Tel Aviv. What's that like? I knew nothing pretty much about Tel Aviv before seeing this show. And I thought it was really interesting, the 12 characters and the different personalities you came across. And so I do think it has a really broad appeal. Obviously, it also has the appeal of the same people that I expect are listening to this podcast, to be honest with you. Women who really want to hear a strong woman's story, who want to laugh, who, you know, appreciate and embrace change. Yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> I want those people in the audience. <laughs> so do I. And I think they'll all be like laughing like me. They'll laugh. They'll cry. They'll love the ukulele. The ukulele anthems. <laughs> yeah. Next thing, surfing the London Stadium tour. It worked for Flight of the Concords, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I know it's only been a, a, a blip in time, but in the last few weeks of producing... Surfing the Holy Land. How has it been? <laughs> it's probably not your average producing job since um, the show was already made. Skin in the Game, which I was talking about before that I worked with Jill on, she had already done the R&D and I, it, it was a bit different because I did have to still come up with the cast and work on things that I normally would say are my forte. <laughs> so... First of all, I appreciate you taking a punt with me because I do think some of the stuff that I'm doing is new. Like I haven't produced a show for Edinburgh. And then I think it's always a risky proposition to go up to a place. Kudos to you for pushing it and getting it programmed and ready to go. So yeah, I'm excited uh, to learn more about producing for The Fringe. I'm excited to expand on what I'm doing, hopefully make some great connections mm -hmm. for the show up there. And so far, it's been great. You are way too on top of things because I feel like I can't impress you with my organizational prowess. <laughs> but it's good because I really do feel like, I mean, I made the whole like, we're two women over 35 and the powerhouses in the industry. But I feel like we've both got this really strong over-the-top work ethic. And it's just been really <laughs> interesting to spend a few weeks really figuring out how we're going to make the show rock. So mm. very exciting. <laughs> Yeah, I have a feeling we, we might get a reputation as being just that at the French, these, the two lone Americans with that show about surfing. <laughs> oh, yeah, them. <laughs> one's really tall and one's kind of small and they both just, they run around talking about surfing a lot. We were destined to play Hermia and Helena and I know yes. we missed an opportunity there. <laughs> That's the spinoff. 
I always ask people to bring a quote and I ask you to bring one today. What is your quote? I, I thought I knew who had written this quote and then I looked it up and it has, it's been attributed to multiple people, but I will go with the fact that I know it from Audrey Hepburn. And the quote is, dance as though no one is watching you. Love as though you have never been hurt before. Sing as though no one can hear you. Live as though heaven is on earth. I just think it's such a joyful and um, hopeful motto to live by. I think it's, I, I just love it. I've always been a person who likes to wear their heart on their sleeve. And it's, yeah, it's a good motto to live by. And the show is about hope. And I think this is, it's a very hopeful point of view. I think it is just like learning not to give a crap is a nicer or less nice way to say it. But yeah, I, I want to live my life dancing as if nobody's watching. Mm. And, and, and it, heaven on earth part I'd never even heard before. I oh, really love right. It. Yeah. Yeah. Because who knows what happens at the end. But in the meantime, it also I just I think of my daughter, Lola, who's seven and who does live that way. And I think it is almost about finding that innocence and childlike. Everything is new and fresh before you learn boundaries and to censor yourself and to edit and all sort of the society norms. I think it's like we were probably all were once that way, dancing like no one's watching, singing as no one hears you. That's exactly perfect. If we could all just live how we were before society or before someone told us we shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Break the rules. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today, Erin. I always tell people, stay in touch. But I think we'll be speaking a bit in the next Just several a months. Bit. <laughs> if I'm not but, haranguing you with WhatsApps in the next half hour, you can assume that I've been hospitalized or something bad's happened. <laughs> Kristen. What about now? What about this? <laughs> Normally, I would say I'll make sure that everything's in the show notes where people can find you. But obviously, Surfing the Holy Land will be all over the place mm -hmm. on Slackline. And it will be in the show notes. And anybody who's going to be in Edinburgh should come see it yes. because yes, we yes. will be there. It's such a fun show. And yeah, we look forward to welcoming amazing audiences. Yes, yes, exactly. Bristow Square, Edinburgh, every day of the festival, third to the 29th, except for the 15th, when I will be sleeping for 24 hours. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, Erin. I will speak Thank with you, you soon. Speak to you soon. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.